Today's reading is taken from Acts 1, 1 to 12. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered round him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. So Acts is the sequel to Luke's gospel, and it's this passage, the Ascension passage, which is the overlap. You get it at the end of Luke, and you get it at the beginning of Acts. At the end of Luke, the resurrected Jesus appears to the disciples. They touch him, he eats with them, and he explains everything that has happened was necessary and was prophesied in the Old Testament so that the forgiveness of sins could be proclaimed to all nations. And then, just as we hear in the beginning of this passage, so too at the end of Luke, he commands the disciples to wait. And then he appears and he ascends, and after that, he tells them to wait some more so that the Holy Spirit can come upon them and they can be his witnesses, during which time they'll be waiting for him to come back at the end of history. So there's a lot of physical hanging about talked about in this passage. The disciples have obediently gathered for Jesus to appear. And after he shows up, yeah, he commands them to go back to Jerusalem and and gather again and wait. And sometimes I think that that might have been, and maybe still is, the hardest part about being a disciple of Jesus, waiting in obedience. But there are also deeper levels of waiting that are talked about in this passage. The kind of waiting that's like a deep, achy longing in our souls. And we get this when the disciples ask Jesus, Lord, will you at this time, you can almost hear them saying, at last, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Is this the end of the struggle? Are you finally going to make everything all right? That's what I hear in this question. And when I first read this passage, I thought, can you imagine the disappointment? Not only does Jesus just say, not yet, and I'm not going to tell you when. He leaves. Jesus exits stage up. First he dies, then he's back and he's resurrected, and that's great. But now he leaves again. 
I'm projecting my own expectation onto this, but the emotional up and down must have been exhausting. And I don't know for certain if the disciples were disappointed for a second at this point, but they certainly seem confused. They stand there, staring up at the sky. <laughs> and then two angels appear and ask them what I find a very odd rhetorical question. Why are you looking into heaven? I can imagine the disciples thinking, well, you know, it's a long story, but there's this bloke. And... <laughs> but the angels already knew all of that. And we know that because obviously they fill in the details and they say, this Jesus, he's coming back the same way that he left. At that point, I thought, well, then surely looking into heaven was a fairly rational thing to do. If he's coming back that way, maybe they're looking for his return. But at that point, they stop looking into heaven and they go back to Jerusalem worshipping. And I thought, what odd behavior. So what is going on with the disciples here? Maybe I can try and unpack it a little bit. Because you see, although they didn't get the answer to the question that they were asking, the idea that Israel was going to be restored back to its future political glory, they did get a different kind of yes to a different kind of question. Because what the angels told them, what's wrapped up in these events, is that the whole earth is going to be restored. And partly that is because when the angels said, this man, he's coming back. So partly their hope was given back to them, deferred a bit into the future, but they had some hope again. But to me, that doesn't really explain why they suddenly left full of rejoicing. At the end of Luke, it says, you know, with great gladness and joy, they left rejoicing. If it was just a deferral, another time of waiting, that seems odd behavior to me. So I did some digging, and I found out that one, maybe one of the reasons they were so happy was because of the expectation that we find in the Old Testament. There has been a long expectation that someone will ascend on behalf of humanity. It's an echo that you can trace throughout all the genres of the Old Testament. Who? Who is it that will ascend for humanity? In Psalm 24, we read a hymn of praise that reads, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in that holy place? Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient of doors, that the king of glory may come in. In Proverbs 30, this question about who will ascend is wrapped up with a sense of power that only the creator has. So Proverbs 30 reads, Who has ascended into heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in his garment? Who has established all to the end of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know. That's Proverbs 30 verse 4. In Isaiah 14, again, we get, the we get a prophecy that there is one who is the day star, the son of the dawn, and that the nations will lay him low, and that he will be cut down to the ground, but then he will ascend to the heavens and he will sit on a throne at the right hand that is equal with God. If we look at the New Testament, in Ephesians 4, we get what I think is a really interesting snippet. It says, 
um, in Ephesians 4, 7, and 9, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to them. Last week, if you were here, James really marvelously explained that when the Israelites were led out of Egypt into the wilderness, all they had ever known was how to be slaves. And that the law was given to them as a gift to teach them what it meant for the first time to live as freed people. And when Moses ascended to Mount Sinai, he returned with God's gift, the law. But when this happens, if you look back at the passage in Deuteronomy, there's this complaint that it's too hard. That the law specifically to love God with all your heart and all your soul is too hard for the people. And the author references a common cry that one will ascend for them instead. And the author of Deuteronomy kind of rebukes the people and says, you don't need that because the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and it is in your heart. And the apostle Paul picks up this passage in Deuteronomy and he references it in Romans 10. And he says this was, a, this was meant for Jesus. This was an anticipation that Jesus would ascend. And in so doing, he wouldn't send the law again. He would send the Holy Spirit because now the word is very near to us and the love of God is poured out in our hearts and that the law which is summarized in love of neighbor and love of God is written right here. But for all of that to happen, there's this cry, this logic throughout the Bible that one needed to ascend. In chapter two of Acts, after Pentecost, I think you're probably gonna get Pentecost next week, so I'm skipping over it. Um, after Pentecost, um, there's again this logic that Jesus had to ascend to send the Holy Spirit. And we read, even King David did not ascend into the heavens. Referencing back to this question that the disciples asked, will you now restore the kingdom of Israel? Referencing the greatest king Israel ever had and probably the greatest worship leader, maybe the greatest individual, even he didn't ascend into heaven. Maybe that's what the disciples were asking, something a bit like that. They wanted the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. They wanted King David back, effectively. They had a kind of cultural nostalgia. You know, sometimes we get it with Downton Abbey or um, War and Peace. I love period dramas, so you get kind of a cultural nostalgia. But more than that, they had a promise and a longing and a birthright that they felt was theirs and was stolen from them. And they wanted it back. And Jesus said, I've got something so much more for you. Instead of going back, Jesus wanted to take them into the future. And that's what they didn't quite get when they asked their question. All of this reminded me of one of my favorite hymns. Uh, you probably know it. It's I Vow to Thee My Country, set to the tune of uh, the Jupiter. It became a hymn in 1921, and the first verse is all about military sacrifice. It's a verse that has resonated throughout this country's history in both world wars, and it was sung at the funerals of important people like Winston Churchill, Princess Diana, and Margaret Thatcher. It's a military national hymn. But the second verse subverts all of that. The second verse 
says there's something so much more beyond the horizon. And this is the scary bit for me. I thought to provide a bit of a break to our thinking, I might just sing the second verse for you. Only if you're okay with that. Yes? Okay. So, after, after all that military victory where there's going to be sacrifice, this is what we get. And there's another country I've heard of long ago. Most dear to them that love her, most great to them that know. We may not count her armies, we may not see her king. Her fortress is a faithful heart, her pride is suffering. And soul by soul and silently her shining bounds increase. And her ways are ways of gentleness, and all her parts are peace. So you see, thank you. <laughs> oh, scary that over. So you see that today, this passage is very similar to that second verse. The king has disappeared. We may not see her king. But the kingdom is here, and the kingdom is coming nevertheless. We may hope for military victories, or maybe in our society, political victories, and the, the restoration of our democracies. God cares about all of that deeply. But the plan is for something better, and something that cannot be brought about through warfare. It cannot be brought about solely through winning political elections. It cannot be brought about through activism, even. The disciples left rejoicing because the hope that they had received in all of these questions and answers and the, the event of the ascension, all that they had received gave them a hope that was bigger than the hope that they had arrived with. The ascension wasn't just a yes to the longing for the restoration of Israel. It was a yes to the restoration of the whole creation, the whole of the material world. Because Jesus didn't leave his body behind. I don't know how you picture the ascension, but sometimes it's a bit like um, in Star Trek, you know, when they move. I can't remember what that's called. When they're trans teleported in Star Trek. That's how I visualize it. don't know if that's helpful for anyone. And it's not like that because Jesus took his body with him. Maybe they do that in Star Trek too, so forget about that. But it's really important. He didn't run away from the trauma of this world. He didn't leave that pain that was kind of visible in his body. He didn't leave it behind. He took it with him. That body, which was a, a, the point of union between a perfect God and an imperfect world, he took that body and he sat it down in heaven, right next to God the Father, and we're told in Hebrews that from there he intercedes on our behalf. So there's no like straightforward triumphalism here. That ascended body is a crucified body. And that's important because it means that no matter what scars your body is carrying or your soul is carrying, 
there's a place for you right next to the Father's heart. Jesus has reserved it. There's space for you in heaven, in a perfect, restored new creation. He took his body and he made space for us. If this was triumphalism, I would have expected Jesus to have ascended like right in the center of the temple courtyard, maybe in front of the Pharisees that had condemned him, or perhaps in the marketplace, um, right in front of the Romans that had abused and executed him. But he didn't ascend there. He ascended in a place called Bethany, right outside Jerusalem, in what is today the West Bank. Bethany, we've experienced before, if you read the New Testament, um, it's the place where Simon the leper lived. Um, and it's where, and when Jesus stays with Simon the leper, um, a woman who is outcast, possibly a prostitute, anoints Jesus with her hair. And it's also the place from where Jesus gets a message saying, Lazarus is dying and he is sick. And so most New Testament scholars think that Bethany was a kind of sick house in Syriac, it literally means house of the afflicted. And it's probably a place where outcasts were. It's just over the hill outside of the view of the temple, just so you can't see it. Um, and it was from this place that Jesus begins his triumphal march back into Jerusalem, the beginning of Easter. And it's from this place that our passage takes place. It's from Bethany that Jesus ascends. So that means... If anyone was looking on, which in that society almost certainly they were, if anyone was just hanging around and saw it happen, they would have been those without any hope. It was to the lowest in society that Jesus gave the honor to witness such a holy moment. It was to those with the least hope that he brought first and foremost the message of hope. So when the disciples, uh, when the angels asked the disciples, will you look back where I started at the beginning? Why are you looking into the sky? You can almost hear them asking, this is how I read it, what or who are you waiting for? And I don't know what you're waiting for this morning. Luckily, none of you look like you're waiting for a BA flight. Um, but we spend most of our lives waiting for something waiting to meet the right person to marry, waiting to qualify in some area, waiting to conceive or waiting for a baby to arrive, then waiting for that child to be old enough so that we can get a good night's sleep again or go back to work. And then when we're at work, we're probably waiting for retirement. We spend a lot of our lives waiting for the next stage. More deeply, sometimes we're waiting for healing, either for ourselves or for someone very close to us can be physical, emotional, or the healing of a relationship. I think the question in our waiting is, are we waiting for the past to be restored? Or are we waiting to step into a new kind of future with God? Whatever it is, I encourage you to bring it before God, possibly in the prayer time during communion, because waiting is really hard. It's possibly my least favorite thing. And so, I think it's really important to ask God to accompany us in our waiting, to help us do it fruitfully. I said earlier that the disciples could have been very disappointed, but God had a much bigger yes than they realized. 
So the second thing I thought it might be good to maybe some of you want to ask prayer for is to think about what is God saying yes to in your life? We confess a lot as Christians, and that is super important because we wander and we get stuff wrong all the time. But when we think about confession of sins, we're often asking, what is God saying no to in my life? What am I doing that God needs to say no to? But I actually thought maybe this week the question to ask as well is what is God saying yes to in my life? What does he want to protect and nurture and grow? What is he thrilled about? So maybe that's something to think about this coming week. And if you can't think of anything, know that God is saying yes to you, to who you are, and you can sort the rest out later. Jesus' ascension, for me, is about waiting. And waiting is about hope. Perhaps you've found thinking about hope this season. Well, recently there was a big sign that said hope up there. I didn't know it was going to be taken away. Imagine the big sign. (laughs) Maybe seeing that over the last couple of weeks has been painful. The disciples left the mountain where Jesus ascended, they left Bethany with more hope than what they had arrived with. And that's my prayer for us this morning, that we leave this place with more hope in our hearts than what we arrived with. The ascension means that we always have a place next to God's heart. It means that the kingdom is definitely coming. It means that the future is going to be greater than the past, It means that Jesus really was, without a shadow of the doubt, the one that the Old Testament had been crying, who who is going to come and ascend for us? And as Jesus says at the end of Matthew's Gospel, during his ascension in that account, behold, I am always with you until the end of the age. Amen.